and in the listening to whatever teachings are traditional offered, um, the idea isn't so much that one is trying to learn something from outside, but rather these are reminders to bring us back to a kind of inner reflection and to the source of our own wisdom. There might be certain things that you disagree with, that's great, you know. Investigate and consider and reflect and then look as deeply as you can to what you know to be true. So the place of the monastery really isn't the place of um, giving things to people very much, actually. It's more like the dump. It's the place where you leave stuff so that you're emptier and in that openness you can listen more genuinely to to the wisest voices of your heart. Over the course of the last uh, several months, we've been working with a series of Buddhist teachings um, on Monday nights that speak of our own true nature, or Buddha nature, and all the wonderful um, qualities of being that they're there to be found naturally in our human heart, in our human nature, um, when they are not covered by the what's called the small sense of self, or the body of fear. And for tonight, and also next week with Sylvia, because her book, her new book, is about the uh, perfections of the heart and and Buddha nature as well, just want to continue on that theme a a bit, Um, and in particular, um, to speak tonight about one of the qualities of the mind and heart that is considered central to understand um, in how best to live from our inner wisdom in the world. And that's a quality that in Sanskrit or Pali, ancient languages of India, is described as the, um, as jaitana, which most simply is translated as a neutral quality of will or intention. There are all these human possibilities um, that are given to us in the particular life in which we're born. And the source of what will then bring us increasing happiness or increasing suffering in the midst of the circumstances around us is the intention and states of heart or mind that we bring to those circumstances that we respond with. In the very first verse of the Dhammapada, um, the words of the Buddha read, mind is the forerunner of all things. With your thoughts and intentions you create the way the world will be. Speak and act with an impure mind or heart and sorrow will follow you as closely as the wheel follows the oxen who draws the cart. Mind and heart are the forerunner of all things. With our mind and heart intentions, we create the way our world will be. Speak or act with a pure heart and mind. And happiness will stay as close to you as your own shadow. Now, we know it in a global way, especially in times like this when there's the great drumbeats of war again and um, the build-up toward destruction um, that is so painful and fearsome, really. If we look honestly, we see that all of that has the roots in the mind, in delusion, in hatred, in aggression, not just on the part of one nation or one group of people, but worldwide, in racism and tribalism. And as those thoughts and images get fed and perpetuated and believed, they have enormous power to create suffering. But even the littlest ones can do that, you know, in in small ways. And Annie Dillard uh, writes of this... um, one account 
where she read about an Eskimo hunter who asked a lo local missionary priest that had come to their villages. I guess the old anthropologist joke is that pretty much every Eskimo village has a shaman, you know, and some hunters and an anthropologist as part of their population. <laughs> but anyway, the local missionary and a missionary priest. Um, if I didn't know about God and sin and all those things that you've taught me in church, um, would I still go to hell? And the priest said, no, not if you didn't know. <laughs> then why, pleaded the Eskimo quite earnestly, did you ever tell me? <laughs> so in the big ways, but in the small ways as well, we can see that the beliefs that we have, the habits that come from those beliefs, the intentions that we make, guide our life. It can be as simple as somebody who decides to stop smoking cigarettes. And they kind of decide to do that. And then all of a sudden, you know, after making that decision, a day or two later, discovered that without thinking about it, after some meal or something, they've taken out the cigarette from wherever they keep them and um, put it in their mouth and lit it up and <sighs> inhaled a little bit and then woke up and realized, oh, I was going to stop smoking. You know that kind of pattern? Some of you may have experienced that, whether it's cigarettes or some other habit. The power of mind is such that the patterns and intentions that we repeat over and over become the way that our life unfolds. Now, in the Buddhist tradition, it is respected in a very deep way that the intentions that we choose to follow and the ways that those intentions are held in the heart will lead um, eventually to some karmic fruit. Just as, again, if I backtrack to the political situation, we have the war on terror, which seems pretty much of an oxymoron when you really look at it. But anyway, we have it, and we want to be safe in the world and at the same time, we are the number one weapon supplier ever on the face of the earth. We sell billions of dollars of killing machines every year globally. And then we wonder why we're not so safe in this world, we and others. And there doesn't seem to be any um, conscious will to stop that habit of arming the world. There's a cartoon I saw in the New Yorker some time ago, and it shows two generals striding down the hall of the Pentagon with all their, you know, um, ribbons and so forth. And one speaking to the other, he says, it really shook me, I can tell you. I dreamed the meek inherited the earth. Right? <laughs> <laughs> now, to take it in a, different, in a different content, but the same principle, it's said that um, Siddhartha the Buddha of 2,500 years ago in India, met many, many eons before the Buddha named Dipankara. And he was so taken with the beauty and graciousness and integrity and compassion of this being that he lay himself down in front of Dipankara Buddha and said, I will do whatever it takes to become awakened like you. He made this great vow, and Dipankara Buddha nodded and said, yes, this being will fulfill such a vow. But it took him a long time, a hundred thousand Mahakalpas and four immensities, they describe it as. You've heard me talk about these kind of numbers, uh, Mahakalpa being the length of time it takes the bird with the silk scarf in its beak to wear down a mountain the size of Mount Everest um, if it goes and drags the scarf across the top of the mountain every hundred years. So it's a really long time. Which means that things don't happen right away. They get fulfilled in their time. But also it really speaks about that which is eternal, which is timeless, outside of time. And so one can make a vow in Buddhism. There are all kinds of intentions. To awaken as a Buddha, to be the chief disciple of a Buddha, to be the one who spreads the word throughout the world to share one's blessings with the whole world is a kind of vow one would traditionally make, directing 
intentions. Um, to even at the very beginning of a meditation, that may this meditation be of benefit to others. But the intention is also really well understood in our society. You know how we um, capture the energy of the mind and direct it has been the study of the some of the highest paid psychologists in our society, which is, of course, in terms of advertising. How do you capture someone's imagination and then direct them in some way that they will really want something in particular? And in education. What did you have in school today? A father asked his teenage son. Oh, we had lectures on sex, was the reply. Lectures on sex? And what did they tell you? Well, first there was a priest who told us why we shouldn't, then a doctor told us how we shouldn't, and finally the principal gave us a talk on where we shouldn't. (laughs) What we raise as images and what we put in the mind as intentions, they guide and lead us. Oh, it's nice to have babies come Monday night. Hi, baby, wherever you are. So a children's tale, because even children understand this. This is one of my favorite of the early Buddhist stories when the Buddha was long, long ago, 50,000 Mahakalpas before he was the Buddha or whatever. He was born in the body of a beautiful parrot in the forests of India. And if you've ever been to India, there are living in the tropics. There are all these amazing tropical birds. There are peacocks and parrots, and parrots are some of the best. Certain places you go and there's hundreds and hundreds of these multicolored parrots and and their songs. And taking birth as a parrot in this story, as it's told, the Buddha lived among the other creatures of the forest and was, um, by virtue of her voice and beauty, was uh, known to and friendly with many, many of the creatures of the forest. And then one day, as the story is told, um, in the height of the dry, dry season of India, when the sun gets very hot and the earth gets really parched, there was a lightning strike. And out of that lightning strike started a tree on fire, and pretty soon there was a fire that began to spread through the forest where this parrot uh, had been living. And as soon as the animals smelled the smoke of the fire, they began to run for fear. Um, And of course, the big ones, the deer and the tigers and so forth, they could run relatively fast and escape the fire. But the parrot became afraid for all of her smaller friends, the mice that lived in little holes, and the uh, rabbits and the burrowing creatures of the forest. And as the fire began to spread, she was so worried that what she did is to go over to the river that ran near the forest and immerse herself in the water of the river and then fly back across the fire of the forest and find, dive down under the trees near the fire and find the friends that she knew that were there and shake her wings to sprinkle some water so that they would be safe to try to help put out the fire in that part. And then she went back to the river, got herself all wet again, and flew through the flames, getting all dirty and smudged with smoke, and again trying to put out the fire as best she could because she was so worried for the lives of the creatures that couldn't run fast enough. So the story is told. Now in these stories, when something unusual happens, on this level when some being on earth dedicates their life to something so noble and so great um, as this parrot trying to put out this fire. It's said that the gods in the heaven, especially the the throne of the great um, king of the gods, becomes warm when something unusual happens on earth. So there they were sporting in the heavenly groves or whatever the gods do there. And um, the throne of the king of the gods became hot. And he looked over and said, oh, there's something interesting happening down there. Oh, my. I see this tiny little bird trying to put out a huge forest fire, flying through the flames irregardless of her life. 
Um, and as he looked, he became more interested and he tumbled from his seat in the heavens. And as he began tumbling down through the air, he became, in the course of that, this great eagle and transformed into a huge bird that flew down and began to fly alongside the little parrot, as the story is told. This is like your bedtime story tonight, right? So <laughs> relax and take it easy. So here's the forest fire, and the parrot's diving in the water and flying back through the flames and trying to sprinkle water and put the fire out and help her friends as best she can one at a time. And this huge eagle comes along and flies along with her and says, what are you doing? This is a forest fire, don't you get it? It's a huge fire. And she said, wait, she said, I I'm sorry. Um, she said, these are my friends, my loved ones. I know them all. I cannot, I cannot stop. I have to do what I can to put out the fire. And she dives in the water and the eagle flies along with her and says, but this is not a particularly likely to succeed as an endeavor. Don't you understand? Um, and the parrot's flying through the flames, and she says, you know, at this moment, I don't really need advice. Thank you. If you want to help, that's one thing, but otherwise, your advice isn't really so, so, so useful to me. And the eagle's flying along. She sees a little mouse and sprinkles the water and then goes back to dive in the stream. And, she says, and the eagle says, but it's not going to work. And she says, I will give my last breath, I will give my life to those who I care for because I am free and I am alive, I want to bring that to them. And go back in the stream and brought it back. And as the eagle flew with her and saw her dedication and her uh, the, the power of the intention of her heart, his own heart softened. And he said, this is really a very noble and wonderful being, this bird. Um, and he watched her sprinkle these animals in danger and some tears began to run down his eagle cheeks or face. And of course you know what happens when the gods begin to cry. All of a sudden the sky changed and even though it was in the hot season, like the end of it, the clouds began to appear and as the king of the gods began to weep, so the clouds appeared and the clouds wept too. And gradually the fire was put out this great hissing sound. And before the eagle flew back up into heaven, as if to bow to the parrot, said, this I have seen in you, really a great nobility of heart and spirit. And I bowed to that and flew away. The parrot landed back down in the forest that was cooled to see and be with her friends. So that's the end of the story that they tell children in India. I never look at the masses as my responsibility, says Mother Teresa. I look at the individual. I can only love one person at a time. I can only feed one person at a time. Just one, one. So you begin. I began. I picked up one person. Maybe if I didn't pick up that one person, I wouldn't have picked up 42,000. The whole work is only a drop in the ocean but if I didn't put the drop in, the ocean would be one drop less. The same thing for you, the same thing in your family, in your community, wherever you live. Just begin one, one, one. So that's the traditional teaching. Now in the myth of the Buddha, the whole life of an awakened one is based on the power of this vow or intention. In the story, again, going back to the, that great kind of mythological moment where it's said that the Buddha walked out of the palaces of great pleasure, the winter and the spring and the summer palace, and saw the heavenly messengers that taught him about the sorrows of life he saw, for the first time a really old person, and said to his charioteer, who is it that gets old like this? And the charioteer said, well, everyone, if they're lucky. And then he saw a truly sick person, gravely ill, that was being lifted up and cared for by others who couldn't even move. He said, who does this happen to? Everyone, said the charioteer. All of us at some point. Buddha shook his head. Buddha to be 
And then he first saw, in the first time in his life, he saw a, a dead body. Remember the first time you saw someone who had died? It's really an amazing thing. Think, wow, who does this happen to? said the Buddha to his charioteer. The charioteer said, everyone, all of us. And finally he saw the fourth of the what are called the heavenly messengers, those that inspired his vow. He saw a yogi, a monk in the distance. And he said, and who is that person wearing these robes, this renunciate? And the charioteer said, oh, that is a person who has gone to dedicate their life to find an end to the sorrows of this world. And in that moment, the Buddha said, I too will dedicate the rest of my days of this life to try to find an end to the sorrows of this human world. Now, when my dear friend and colleague and uh, the teacher Ajahn Sumedho, who is the abbot of a number of monasteries in England and around the world, um, kind of the, the senior Western student of my teacher Ajahn Chah, when he first went to England 20-some years ago with Ajahn Chah and was put in a little tiny apartment in England with the British Buddhist Society kind of helping him, he was a forest monk, but he was in this little apartment, and Ajahn Chah was there with a little bit, and Sumedho said, should I go out with my begging bowl every day? And Ajahn Chah said, absolutely. He said, well, what if they laugh at me, or what if they don't put anything in your bowl, in my bowl? And Ajahn Chah said, but how will they ever know about monks and bowls unless you go out there? Your job isn't so much to collect food, that, you know, will come or it won't, depending on your karma. Your job as a monk is to go out with your bowl and give people the opportunity to make an offering. So every day, Sumedho would go out with his bowl and walk the streets of wherever he was, um, near Hyde Park, actually, and, and in some of the, you know, parts of London. Um, and sometimes people would recognize and put a little food in. He said sometimes the kids would come up and take stuff out as well. That was okay. Um, but it, in fact, it, it worked better than he ever imagined because one day he was walking through the park near the center of London with his alms bowl and his robes and a man came up to him who was jogging this fellow and said, what are you? And Ajahn Sumedha said, I'm a, uh, I'm a Buddhist monk. And I, we go out every day with our bowl like the Buddha did to allow people to make offerings. That's how we live. Um, and the man asked a few more questions. He said, well, what are you doing in London? And, Sumedho said, well, actually, I'm a forest monk. We usually live way out in the forest, but um, I was offered this little apartment in London, and so we monks take what, we were, what we're offered. And this man said, oh, so interesting. I have a beautiful forest in Kent, in the south of here in England. I've been wondering who would care for it. You would be the perfect person. And he wrote a little note, and then I offer you a forest, and he put it in the bowl. <laughs> so it worked, you see. This is a true story of how his monastery started. But there's one more part to it. When Ajahn Sumedho said to our teacher, to Ajahn Chah, why should I go out there? And Ajahn Chah said, because if you want to bring the way of these, the Buddha to the West, then someone will have to understand um, what it means to live with this kind of simplicity that you dedicate your life to. So you have to show them. You have to go out and do that. And you just follow your intention to do this and let's see what will happen based on that. And then he said, but there's another urgent region why you um, must go out in the streets of London. And Ajahn Sumedho said, why is that? And he said, because it's possible that the next Buddha is walking the streets of London tomorrow morning, and he's waiting to see the fourth of the heavenly messengers. He may have seen sickness and old age or warfare or death, and you will be the symbol, the image, by which he will take a vow to awaken. So you have to go out there in case someone is waiting to see you. When we lived in the monastery, we would begin our day at three in the morning. There'd be this bell that woke you up in the forest. You know how we were sitting tonight? It was so beautiful to hear the sounds of the crickets in the dark night, and we were kind of sitting. It reminded me of sitting in the forests and the forest monasteries. And then the bell would ring at 2.30 or 3 in the morning. 
too early as far as I was concerned, but that's another story. Never liked getting up that early, but I did. And we'd go and sit in the dark. It was really quite magical. And we'd do our chants after we meditated, um, devoting ourselves to see the Buddha in every being, to follow the way of the Dharma, to awaken the world together as a Sangha and so forth. And then we'd do a chant um, about old age and sickness and death, which said, I too am of the nature to age. I too am of the nature to get sick. And I too am of the nature to die. Therefore, what do I choose to dedicate my life to? And we would repeat our own inner intention that with the food that is offered, you don't say thank you when somebody puts something in your bowl. You're supposed to be really silent. You go and you walk through the villages, as I did with my bowl, and some of the poorest people will come out and place their food in the bowl, and you can't say thank you for the banana or something like that. You just walk as if you are a Buddha in some way and bless them silently. Um, But all you can do when you go back and these poor people have given you of their little bit of food is to reflect and say, they offer this food out of the great intention that you represent the possibility of compassion and awakening in this world. They want to feed you to keep that spirit alive. And so you dedicate yourself every day before you eat with gratitude. May this day, may the life that I've been given this day be used to further compassion, and wakefulness for myself and all beings. So this quality of intention is at the core of the life in the monastery. But it really gives power to people everywhere. Um, If you understand the purpose or value of your life, This is a letter that was written by a young child who had cancer. And he says, my teacher asked me to write this, why we are born. It's a really hard paper to write. At first, for a long time, I couldn't think of anything, but now I think of something to say. I think God made us each born for different reasons. He doesn't want us to do the same thing, so that's why he makes us all so different. If God gives you a great voice, maybe he wants you to sing. Or if God wants you to be a farmer, he might give you to a family that lives on a farm so you get used to the animals and you're not afraid of them. And maybe if God makes you seven feet tall, maybe he wants you to play for the Lakers or the Celtics. (laughs) When my friend Kim died from her cancer, I asked my mom if God was going to make Kim die when she was only six years old, why did he ever make her born at all? But my mom said even though she was only six, she changed people's lives. What that means is like her brother or sister could be the scientist that discovers the cure for cancer and they decided to do that because of Kim. Or me too, I used to wonder why God picked on me and gave me cancer. And maybe it was because he wanted me to be a doctor who takes care of kids with cancer. So when they say, Dr. Jason, Sometimes I get so scared I'm going to die, or you don't know how weird it is to be the only bald kid in school. I can say, oh yes I do. When I was a little boy I had cancer too. And now look at all my hair. Someday your hair will grow back too. The thought manifests as the deeds. The deeds create habit. The habit hardens into character, and the character shapes the world. So watch the ways of your thoughts and intentions with care and see that they spring out of love from all beings, love for all beings, from all beings. So one of the things that we listen to as we sit in meditation and begin to get quiet enough to come back into the silence of the heart out of the busyness of all the life around us, is to get still enough to hear our own deepest intentions and let them become a guide for 
our lives. That we might, in some fashion, bring ourselves, bring our hearts most fully to this birth that we have been given. One can live at a low flame. Many people do. For some, life is an exercise in moderation, best China saved for special occasions. But giving, given the reality of something like death, remember that. What does it matter if one looks foolish now and then, or tries too hard, or cares too deeply? So part of the practice of attention is to begin to listen to our deepest intention. And to do this, to awaken, we discover that the beauty of the heart, that your fundamental goodness is there to be listened to over and over. It's always been here, if you will. But it does take some practice. The practice is in listening again and again, listening deeply. You know, in the Buddhist training of dream yoga, which is the lucid dreaming practice, in which as you do your deep retreat practice or your own inner meditation, and you become more and more aware of your breath and body and mind and thoughts, stream and so forth, you can then make the resolution, the intention, to be aware even while you're dreaming. But the way that practice of dream yoga works is that you make that intention over and over and over. It doesn't happen right away unless you're a very remarkable meditation student. You might be on retreat, um, practicing for many, many days or weeks or months and so forth. And then when it's time, when you feel really stable inwardly and it's time to do this practice, then throughout the day regularly you say to yourself, I will awaken and be aware during my dreams. I will be awake during my dreams. I will be aware during my dreams. Over and over. May I be aware during my dreams. And you do it hundreds of times over the course of this training. And then you know what happens? At some point you start falling asleep and you go, oh, I'm dreaming. And there's this quite remarkable experience. It's not that difficult, but it takes some concentration and dedication. And there you are conscious even as you dream. Quite fantastic. And for a long time, Western psychology just thought that was kind of, you know, more hocus from the, you know, Tibetan imagination and not very real. But of course, as most of you know, starting in the 1970s especially, there was a series of studies done at Stanford Sleep Lab, I think, Stephen LeBurge and others, that um, discovered, oh yeah, it's quite possible to do, at least tra train oneself to do dream practice and lucid dreaming. Now in meditation, the power of intention, aditana, it's also described as, jaitana, uh, becomes stronger as you become stiller and quieter. And when you get very concentrated and still on a retreat for most people, the mind becomes not only lucid or clear, but also quite malleable. So you can say, may my mind stay on my breath, and it just does. It kind of rests there. Or may I listen to the sounds of the world and really tune into the sounds. And for a long period of time, you just dissolve into the sounds. The mind can really be trained. Or when you become even more deeply still, you can say, may my body and mind, now that I'm so still and concentrated, may I be filled with rapture. And it's fantastic. It's just like pushing a button on one of these, you know, CD players or something, and then the rapture tape comes on, and you just get filled with rapture. And all you have to do is ask that it happen, because the quality of concentration and intention and steadiness is so strong that you make the intention, and it just arises. And it, it, it really startles people. This happens more when we do our longer retreats. We'll do our winter two-month retreat, for example, here, and some people will do these really deep trainings and concentration and so forth. Um, and I remember one person who I said, well, I want you to go back because I knew they were really ripe for this and I want you to make the intention, you know, may happiness or rapture arise. 
um, and I gave them the Sanskrit word to use, and they said uh, they forgot even really what the word meant, but they made the sitting got very still in meditation, made piti arise, whatever it is, and then the minute they said the word, all of a sudden they said, my body, it got filled first with light and then with bubbles like champagne, and then the most exquisite sensations, and it was pouring out of the top of my head and out of my hands and feet, and I was just sitting there and grinning, and, and all I did was say, may it happen, and it happened. I hope you're listening to this, because it's kind of fun to talk about, um, and that it inspires you, because uh, it's true. Um, or the deepest insights, when you get very still, you can make the intention, may I rest in the deepest knowing, or may I come to the most profound wisdom that my heart can know at this time on earth, and very deep insights will come, because we make the intention and because we really listen. Now, you can listen to this and say, oh, okay, this is really cool. Does this work with parking spaces? You know, <laughs> and does this work with the stock market and so forth? I'm not just going to use it for inner rapture. How about a little louder, you know, whatever. There are limits that one needs to understand in how this works. You can't, for example, say, I won't grow old. May I not grow old? People have tried it, you know, and even thought it worked for a little while. I knew some of them say, it's, it's happening, but then I ran into them five or ten years later, and, you know, or I'm not going to think anymore. Just stop thinking and so forth. Let's see. Where is this passage from the Buddha? Where he says, There are certain things which no yogi and no god, no being in the universe can bring about. What sorts of things are those? That what is subject to old age should not grow old. That what is subject to sickness or death should not be sick or die. That is sub what is subject to pass away or decay should not happen. These are truths that no intention will change. So the Buddha goes on. If person thinks that they can empty the Ganges River by taking a basket and emptying one basket of water at a time, or that a person can, by taking a shovel, dig this great earth and say, the earth shall be no more. In such a futile way are those who make the wrong kind of intentions. May I not grow old, may I not die, and so forth. The intentions, in the most fundamental way, are like planting seeds, like garden seeds. And you can't plant an apple seed and say, now may a mango tree grow doesn't work that way in karma. But what you can do is plant the most beautiful seed of your being and water it and fertilize it and give it the proper temperature and so forth, and then your own Buddha nature will flower and manifest. And you will become the rose that you're supposed to be. You won't be a sunflower or a daffodil or whatever. You will be what you are supposed to be. And so the deepest intention is to fulfill the beauty of our own true nature, our compassion, our wisdom, the love that we can bring to this life and to this earth, and to manifest it in your own unique way. I read this last week. I was reading an article in Harper's Magazine that was written by an art professor at uh, Columbia University wrestling with September 11th again. And he talked about how his colleagues in the months after, especially those who lived in Manhattan and even in you know, lower Manhattan where all the great devastation took place, he would meet them and he said people were so dispirited that they said it feels so absurd to be making art at this time. Why should I do that? Kind of felt superfluous. And he said it felt like a blow when he heard that, like somebody didn't understand what art really meant. And so his response, and part of it he wrote and posted, was to um, put on the board there the description of what the workers in 1945 who were reclaiming the prisons in Birkenau and other concentration camps in Germany found, which were poems folded into thick squares written on toilet tissue and stuffed into the electrical wiring. 
so that that person who was locked in the cell or there in the concentration camp awaiting torture or death chose to write a poem on the last piece of paper they could find, um, not even knowing if anyone would read it, but something in us still has to speak. Something in us has to tell the truth if we listen. And that's really the purpose of art. You know, maybe his colleagues, the ones that didn't know what to do with art, were not really making the art that came from the deepest place in their being. I'll put it another way, much simpler. I'm an artist. When my daughter was born, after a difficult labor, we had an emergency cesarean operation. There I was at the hospital, very worried. I remember talking with the doctor about what he did for a living, or what I did for a living, because I'm an artist. The doctor confided in me, he said, I wish I'd been a musician or an artist, because I really love art. I love to play music. I love to play the concert piano. And later, after my wife had delivered the child, the doctor came out with good news. Everyone was fine. And we're standing there, and another physician walked up who had just um, helped uh, um, and spoke to the doctor who completed the emergency cesarean and delivered the child and said, Excuse me, doctor, I just want to tell you you performed brilliantly in there. It was an honor to assist you. And I turned to our doctor and said, Now tell the truth. You've just brought a new life into the world and saved another, and you've had one of your colleagues tell you it was an honor to be in your presence. For heaven's sake, can you honestly say you'd wish you'd been a musician? And the doctor grinned and said, Well, it went pretty well in there. We both laughed, and then the doctor said, And I know exactly why. Because this morning I got up early and for an hour I played Chopin at the piano. So we each have to listen to what will fulfill our deepest intention and vows. There are the bodhisattva vows. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to bring awakening to them all. Confusion is inexhaustible. I vow to uproot it. The Dharma gates are endless. I vow to open them all. And the way of the Buddha is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it fully. People would take those bodhisattva vows every time they sit in certain monasteries. Now, it's important again to have the right perspective about this. So Zen Master Wei Nung says at one point after speaking of these vows, learned audience, I too vow to save all sentient beings everywhere. But having declared this, what does this mean? Does it mean that I, Wei Nung, am going to go and deliver them one by one around the earth? Is that what it means? And who are these sentient beings but the delusions of our collective mind? In the monastery every day, we take our vows, we start with the refuges, may I see the Buddha in every being I meet, the bodhisattva vows, may I, my day be dedicated to the awakening of others. We take the precepts, may my actions not bring harm in word or deed to others. We do regular confessions, because we really don't succeed in our precepts and our practices. That's why we have regular confessions. Okay, I didn't succeed. Let's take it all over again. In fact, when you go to the monastery, you take, even as lay people, you take the vows all over again the next time, each time, because they assume that, you know, you need to start over again. It's just how it works. And, 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 and uh, it's fine that it's that way. But what matters underneath it all is your sincere intention. Like the Dalai Lama says, sometimes I act, you know, in these very difficult questions. How can I make the right decision for the people of Tibet and the nation and, and all of the things, that, the great burdens that are put on the Dalai Lama's shoulders? He says, sometimes I don't even know if I'm making the right decisions, what things to do. But all that I can do is to trust my sincere motivation all that I most 
deeply trust is that I have the best possible intention. The secret in the Bhagavad Gita, the secret of life, again, it says, is to act well without attachment to the results of your actions. To act with the purest, the wisest, the most compassionate attention, intention of your heart. And then let the world be as it is because it's really not up to us. And if you dedicate yourself in that way in the long term, something good will happen. No matter how long it takes, it will. I mean, the vow from the Dalai Lama, may I be a guard for those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the road. May, may I be a boat, a raft, and a bridge for those to cross the waters. May I be a medicine for all those who are sick, and food for all those who are hungry, and lamp for those who need light. May be a servant, the wishing jewel, the vase of plenty, the word of power, the supreme remedy. And may I offer my life so that every single thing that lives, numberless, in boundless reaches of the sky, awaken together with me. Until that time I offer myself. That's a pretty amazing vow to live one's life by. I've been in conversation with um, the people who are organizing the Dalai Lama's next visit to New York next September. He's going to do a big teaching in Central Park, as he had a few years ago, probably. Last time there was, I don't know, 300,000 people that came. Quite phenomenal. And one of the things that we're talking about, trying to arrange, the Dalai Lama is interested in doing some teachings that will go to the people who are in prison in America. Because we have six and a half million people in our prisons or out on parole in our prison system. It's completely insane. And one of the suggestions that we've talked about, and I think the Dalai Lama will do it, is that he do some separate teachings with a few of the old lamas who spent years and years in prison in Tibet, who've come out so that they too can say, yes, 25 years I did, hard time, and I was tortured, and here is what worked for me. Here is the vows that I took and the intentions that I carried as this one old lama that I heard spoke. And when somebody asked, you know, are you afraid they're going to torture you, these terrible things will happen? And he said, yes, I was terribly afraid. And what I was afraid of was that I would hate my captors. That was my real fear. So I'm hoping that somehow what will get communicated, which the Dalai Lama said he wanted to do, is that within the limitations of this human life, whether one is in prison or one is in business or one is in a family, you know, they're all different forms of doing time, as you know. <laughs> it's just the way it is. That within those, there is a possibility for immense freedom. And the freedom is the freedom of the heart's intention, no matter what happens. And that's what the Dalai Lama wants to communicate to these people who are there in the midst of the prisons. Yes, that even so, your heart can be free. Like Zen Master Dogen, who says, see if I can find it here. Where are you, Dogen? Hiding in my bag. Ah, yes. Small, but here he is. He says, a fish swims in the ocean, and no matter how far it swims, there's no end to the water. A bird flies in the sky, and no matter how far it flies, there's no end to the air. Now, if a bird or fish tries to reach the end of its element before moving in it, this bird or fish will not find its way or its place. When you find your place where you are, awakening occurs. For the place and the way is neither large nor small, and neither yours nor others. This place, this way, is not carried over from the past, but it is eternally present. And 
the nature of the wind arises, and because the wind arises, and you are here, you can awaken. He goes on and on. So you don't have to look to find the end of the ocean or the end of the air, you know, or the end of some circumstance that you find yourself in. But you swim in this life that's given to you as a human with its joys and sorrows, and there is a freedom in the midst of it that is your birthright. The poet Hafiz says, the small man builds cages for everyone he meets. The small man builds cages for everyone he meets, the limitations. While the sage, who has to duck her head when the moon is low, keeps dropping keys all night long for the beauty, beautiful, rowdy prisoners. I'll read that again. The small man builds cages for everyone he meets, puts them all in little boxes. While the sage, who has to duck her head when the moon is low, keeps dropping keys all night long for the beautiful, rowdy prisoners. May you be free. May you be truly free. Like Martin Luther King, who begins, says, I'd like someone to say, mention on that day that Martin Luther King tried to give his life serving others. I'd like someone to say, on that day that I tried to love somebody. I want you to be able to say that I did, on that day, try to feed the hungry to serve humanity. If you want to say I was a drum major, say I was a drum major for justice, a drum major for peace, a drum major for righteousness. I just want to leave a committed life behind. Alan Watts wrote a very wonderful book entitled On the Taboo Against Knowing Who We Are. If you listen, if you remember inside, who am I really? Who are you really, wanderer? What brings you on this earth? All the times we've been asleep in this life, what wants to awaken in your heart? O nobly born, let yourself ask and remember. You will find the intentions that will guide your life truly and honorably and beautifully. Everyone knows that the drop merges into the ocean, says Kabir, but few know that the ocean merges into the drop. That sacredness, the holy, that we might seek, the most beautiful thing we can imagine, is a part of who we are, and it has always been so. We are what we seek, and we can bring that to the world. And on Gandhi's tomb, in case you ever have difficulty, is written, if you come to a moment of, your, of doubt in your life, what should I do before you act? Think of the poorest person you've ever met and ask, will this act be of any benefit to them? So that's Gandhi's answer. But you have to find your own. And all I can say is that I know that it will be beautiful if you look. Let's sit for a moment.
just a few more words and then a chant before we go. If you want to study intention most simply in this week ahead, become aware of the intention before you speak with someone. And notice, especially if it's something that seems a little bit difficult or some place of disharmony or conflict, notice before you speak whether the intention is to be right or to get even or to show somebody up or whether the intention is to listen or to really try to understand their point of view, whether the intention inside is one of self-defense or fear or love. Without any judgment, ask yourself inwardly, what is the intention that I most deeply want to communicate before I speak? And see what happens with the different intentions. Maybe we'll have a little quiz next week to see what you've learned. Um, a couple of people asked, because last week I talked about um, the nonviolent peace brigade that's being kind of fostered worldwide by a number of different groups as an alternative to war. Um, and I've been talking to people involved in this project, projects around the world, and I'm going to try and bring information in the next couple of weeks for those who want to be part of supporting that. I'm also told for some reason there will not be a dinner next Monday night, so just so you should know that. Um, and uh, do what you can for peace in this world and in this country. We really need it. Talk to people, stand up, um, let your voices be heard, let your intention flower in your life, because it's really a time for it. Um, the, as I said last week, the, the, the limitations, the failure of our imagination in solving world conflicts that we either go to war and bomb huge numbers of people, you know, or, or we can't solve our problems, there are other ways. Um, and we need to dedicate ourselves to that. So the chant this evening, very simple, is just the chant Namo, which means when you meet someone in India and you put your hands together, Namaste, I honor the divine in you. Um, the root of that word Namaste is to bow to, to pay your respects. I see who you really are. Um, and so we'll chant the word Namo, and as you do, you can bow to the most beautiful intentions of your own heart and to the possibilities in this world and, and to anything else that you feel you wish to honor with a bow tonight. Also to those who are suffering um, and to those causing it, may they awaken. We'll chant Namo nine times and then go out into this beautiful summer autumn evening. Namo 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 Add harmony Namo 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 be beautiful this week 
and may you remember them again and again. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.